Well, let us worship our God. I invite you to stand if you're able, as we all stand in reverence to the Lord. We hear His call to worship. Uh, the call this morning comes from Revelation chapter 4, as we get a picture of the throne room of heaven and the worship that is there, inviting us to worship this morning. Revelation chapter 4, beginning in verse 8. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within and day and night, never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before Him who is seated on the throne and worship Him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are You, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for You created all things. And by your will, they existed and were created. Let us pray. O oh Lord, we join our voice with the angelic host and the church triumphant now. And we cry out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. We come answering your call. We come into your presence in the righteousness of Christ our Savior. We come anticipating the work of the Spirit amongst us. Oh, Father, we come to glorify You, our triune God. And we look forward to see how You will be working amongst us through Your means of grace, word, prayer, and sacrament, that we might grow in Christ's likeness and that Your name would be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, let us put our voices together and sing. Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing, you'll find on page 7 of your order of service.
please be seated. We rejoice in the mercy that our great God shows us, and we have the opportunity to enjoy some of that mercy as we come and take the opportunity now to confess our sins to Him. Uh, we're going to uh, pray our confession aloud together and have a few moments of silence for personal confession as we anticipate hearing uh, the assurance of pardon from God's Word. So let's pray. Let's go to the Lord by faith and confess aloud. O Lord, almighty and most gracious God, you alone are holy, holy, holy. We ask you to hear our confession as we grieve how we have sinned against you. Our transgressions of your law have hurt our neighbors and harmed ourselves. O Lord, we beg your forgiveness. Father, we acknowledge that we deserve your just and holy judgment, yet we know you are our covenant faithful God who forgives. May the Spirit who indwells us apply your forgiveness for the sake of your Son who earned it for us, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. confess by faith, let us hear now by faith the assurance of pardon, the assurance of God's forgiveness from His Word in Psalm 103, beginning in verse 8. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will He keep His anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His steadfast love towards those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does He remove our transgressions from us. Amen. Amen. Praise the Lord for His mercy and His grace towards His people. Well, this morning, uh, we're going to confess our faith using a portion of the Westminster uh, Confession of Faith. a chapter, a section of the chapter dealing with the Scriptures, the Bible, and what we believe about them. So let's confess aloud together. What is it? What is it that you believe regarding the Holy Scriptures? Although the light of nature and the works of creation and providence do so far manifest the goodness, wisdom, and power of God as to leave men unexcusable, Yet are they not sufficient to give that knowledge of God and of His will, which is necessary unto salvation. Therefore it pleased the Lord at sundry times and in diverse manners to reveal Himself and to declare that His will unto His church and afterwards for the better preserving and propagating of the truth and for the more sure establishment and comfort of the church against the corruption of the flesh 
and the malice of Satan and of the world, to commit the same wholly unto writing, which maketh the Holy Scripture to be most necessary, those former ways of God's revealing His will unto His people being now ceased, the authority of the Holy Scripture, for which it ought to be believed and obeyed, dependeth not upon the testimony of wholly upon God, who is truth itself, the author thereof. And therefore, it is to be received because it is the Word of God. As you remain seated, let's respond and praise the Lord as we sing the Gloria Patri. You'll find on page 8. pray as we continue to worship and prepare to give. Oh Lord, you own the cattle on a thousand hills. You own the great wealth throughout the universe. You, the creator of all things, give to your people exactly what you know we need. Lord, you grant to us different amounts of time, treasure, and talent to steward over. And we ask that you would help us to steward them to your glory and the benefit of your church. Lord, we're thankful for the opportunity we have that you teach us regularly to be generous with our time and with our talents and with our treasure. Lord, even as as we look to being merciful to others as you are merciful to us. So as we come this morning and we give to you, or we have given online, we pray, Lord, that, that our giving comes from hearts that love you and not hearts that are trying to check a box or feel like we are forced to do this, but instead that we might come and worship to you. And we ask and pray that you would use our meager gifts, that you would take this little amount that we give and you would multiply it and that you would bring forth a great harvest from it that we might see the gospel going forth in our community here in Northwest Knox, disciples being made, and mercy going forth as we meet the needs of those who are in need. Oh Lord, give us wisdom and the ability to do these things. Help us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
you cry out to him, Abba, Father. Ever-blessed triune God, Father, Son, Spirit, you are the creator, ruler, and sustainer of all things that are seen and unseen. You are the maker of time and space. And we sit in awe, bowed before you, amazed at your glory. And we come to worship. Oh Lord, as we come, we praise and thank you for the mercies that you show us. Especially the mercy that we enjoy and the salvation that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we thank you for not only the, the mercy of salvation, but the mercy that you show us as you care for us and keep us as your people. Lord, we pray for the needs of the brethren, of your people here at Christ Church. We pray for health of our bodies, soundness of our minds. We pray for faithfulness of our hearts, cheerfulness of spirit. We, we pray for contentment in the midst of the providence that you bring to us in our lives. We ask that you would help us to be a generous people toward our neighbors and especially towards each other, that we might here in the body of Christ use the gifts that you've given to each of us. Lord, whatever those may be, as Christ is our head, may we fulfill the, the roles that you've given to us as different portions and, and members of the body, that we might all, under the, the labors of your faithful elders, and your means of grace that the Spirit might equip us, equip us for ministry amongst ourselves, and that we would then go out as salt and light each and every day and everywhere we go. Lord, we pray that you would care for the mothers amongst us who are carrying covenant children. Lord, we pray for our friends who are traveling and not with us this morning, that you would keep them safe and bring them back. Lord, you have shown us your covenant faithfulness. We have experienced your compassion and mercy. We are confident that you will keep your promises and that we will enjoy these things today and in the future. And we rejoice in that. And we place our, our hearts upon that truth and we rest in you. And we pray that you would be at work amongst us, that here at Christ Church, that we would be a church known for our love for you, our love for your word, our love for one another and our love for our neighbors, and that others would see our love for you and love for neighbor, and they would see the fruit of, of the mercy that we show. And that even as we show mercy out of our great love for you to those around us, that you might use even that, Lord, to draw the loss to you. We desire to be a church and a people that are full of godly biblical mercy. 
For we want to be faithful witnesses of Christ in word and deed. We want to be used for the building of your church. Oh Lord, not in a selfish way, but for your glory. We desire to see this room filled. Filled to the point that we have to to trust fully in you as we seek to, to start another church. Lord, we might be a, a nursery at Christ's church, a nursery for elders and deacons and, and for men that would go forth planting more churches throughout the Knoxville area, East Tennessee, and even the world. Lord, we pray that, that this church would be a, a nursery that you would be using to raise up godly and faithful Christians, disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, men, women, boys, girls all who would be seeking first you and your kingdom and your glory above all else. Lord, make our priorities right. Fix our hearts upon you. Lord, we pray as our forebears have prayed before, as they have come crying out, praying prayers that, that make no sense to the world, that even seem audacious, and we pray the same things as they've come before You crying out, Lord, that You might use them for the revival and reformation of the lands that they live in. Lord, we pray that same thing. May we be so bold that You might use us, that You would turn Knoxville upside down with Your church, and that we might truly be overflowing to such a point in this city and our community that we would be searching and searching and searching to find someone who has not received your mercy and grace and is a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we are thankful that your will is perfect and it is done. So we it and we trust you. Lord, even as we pray for the growth of, of your kingdom, we're reminded of the of the civil kingdom that we are a part of, the nation, the country that you've placed us in. So we pray for the civil authorities, our leaders. We ask for grace and wisdom to go to them, those who serve in the different spheres of our government, civil government, whether it be federal, state, or local. Pour your grace out upon them. Give them wise counselors. Lord, we pray that that they might not do anything that would hinder or hamper or seek to restrain the church and the gospel, but that we might live at peace with all of those and witnessing you in all things to others. And Lord, we pray for your church around your world. And as we pray for your church and blessings upon it, the growth in numbers and in godliness, Lord, we pray for our neighbors down the road, for Grace Baptist Church, for blessings upon them as well. Lord, we come, we come together as your people. We're looking forward to this evening to worship you again, this day you've given to us, but now we come in one voice and pray as Jesus has taught us. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, 
but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. We love the means of grace here at Christ Church, word, prayer, and sacrament. And one of the ways that we enjoy the word is uh, following uh, an ancient practice of the continual reading of the scriptures. We read in both the Old and the New Testaments each Lord's Day as God allows us. And this morning in our Old Testament reading, we come to chapter 21 here in Numbers, Numbers 21. If you're using a pew Bible, you can turn to page 120 and you'll find our selection that we're reading from. Uh, chapter 21, there's many things going on here. There's a great reminder that God is sovereign. He is the one that raises up nations, empires, countries, peoples, and He is the one that casts them down uh, at His will. He is the one that brings blessing and judgment upon the nations as well. Even as we see, as we read through the chapter uh, when we're together again, Genesis 15, 16 being... Uh, that uh, prophecy uh, coming to light as the iniquity of the Amorites has been completed and God uses Israel in judgment against the Canaanites. But first, as we read here in the beginning of chapter 21, as we're going to read through to verse 20, uh, we see judgment upon God's people. And there's a prefiguring here, one that the New Testament points back to as the people are called to look up, to raise up and look upon the serpent that is on the pole. In the same way the New Testament tells us we are to look up and look upon Christ, Christ crucified and resurrected for salvation. So this is God's Word. Numbers 21, beginning in verse 1. When the Canaanite, the king of Arad, who lived in the Negev, heard that Israel was coming by the way of Atharim, he fought against Israel and took some of them captive. And Israel vowed a vow to the Lord and said, If you will indeed give this people into my hand, then I will, devout, I will devote their cities to destruction. And the Lord heeded the voice of Israel and gave over the Canaanites, and they devoted them and their cities to destruction. So the name of the place was called Hormah. From Mount Hor they set out by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole, and if a serpent had bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. And the people of Israel set out and camped in Oboth. And they set out from Oboth and camped at Lyabrim, and in the wilderness that is opposite Moab toward the sunrise. From there they set out and camped in the valley of Zerid. From there they set out and camped on the other side of Arnon, which is in the wilderness that extends from the border of the Amorites, for the Arnon is the border of Moab between Moab and the Amorites. Therefore it is said in the book of the wars of the Lord, Wahib in Supla in the valleys of Arnon and the slope of the valleys that extends to the seat of Ar and leans to the border of Moab. And from there they continued to burr. That is the well of which the Lord said to Moses, Gather the people together so that I may give them water. 
Then Israel sang this song, Spring up, O well, sing to it, the well that the princes made, that the nobles of the people dug, with the scepter and with their staffs. And from the wilderness they went on to Matinah, and from Matinah to uh, Nathaleel, and from Nathaleel to Bamoth, and from Bamoth to the valley lying in the region of Moab by the top of Pisgah that looks down on the desert. We turn our attention from our Old Testament reading to our New Testament reading as we turn to Romans chapter 13. Romans chapter 13, that's page 892 if you're using one of our uh, pew Bibles that are there. Uh, As we read in in Romans 13, uh, we are uh, reminded in this chapter uh, that Christians, by God's grace, uh, fulfill the law by love, that Christians are called uh, to obey and submit to the Lord in absolutely everything. And they are called to submit to authorities, civil authorities, in all that they do that is lawful. So we read now God's Word, Romans chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, You shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Besides this, you know the time, that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, but in cor- not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Amen. Amen. Well, having heard from from God, we have the opportunity now to take His Word and and we'll minister to one another in song and praise Him with His songbook. So if you're able, let's stand as we all sing Psalm 100, printed on page 9 in your order of service.
Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Let's pray. Let's cry out to the Lord for his help uh, this morning as we anticipate and look forward to the reading and preaching of his word. Glorious God, we cry out to you and, and ask for your help. We ask that, Father, the Spirit would be at work amongst us, revealing Christ to us, that we might witness amongst us and hear of those who are watching online and, and listening and watching later that, that the Spirit uses even this reading and preaching of the Word to save many. Even as we are excited about how you will use it to build up your saints and to grow us in Christ's likeness, that we might enjoy sanctification, being conformed to the image of our Savior. Oh, Lord, do these things for your glory and our benefit. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, if you'll turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, uh, Matthew chapter 5, if you're using a pew Bible, that's page 759. We're going to be continuing our uh, sermon series together, looking at, ultimately, the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Christ's uh, sermon that he is giving. We're in the section of the Beatitudes uh, right now, and we're going to actually be reading all the entirety of the Beatitudes, even though we're focusing in on one in particular in verse 7. Uh, but we're going to read it all because, as I've been mentioning, uh, though we can take time to focus on one of the Beatitudes, we don't want to separate the Beatitudes uh, from one another in the, in the greater context that we see. Uh, Dr. Sinclair Ferguson, as I've mentioned before, has written about uh, this section of God's Word. It's it's not a sermon about an ideal life and an ideal world, but about the kingdom life and a fallen world. So by God's grace, let's keep that in mind as we hear his word read and preached. Matthew chapter 5, let me be reading verses 2 to 12, and then we'll come back and read verse 7 again. This is God's word. And he opened his mouth, that is Jesus, and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive. Blessed are the pure in spirit, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. As we go back and read verse 7, as we remember Christ as his teaching and, and preaching to his disciples, we read in verse 7, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. May the Lord take his word and bring forth great fruit in each of our lives, as we know it will not return to him void, but do all that he intends. 
about 250 years ago, give or take, uh, December uh, 1772, in a, a town in England, uh, John Newton sat down and began to write uh, the hymn Amazing Grace. I don't know many of you are probably familiar with Amazing Grace. If you've been with us for any time, we sing Amazing Grace on a you know, pretty regular basis. And if you haven't uh, been with us before, uh, you've probably perhaps sung Amazing Grace. If you haven't sung it, you've probably heard it. Even if you just watch uh, some of the singing competitions, it seems that uh, Amazing Grace is a song that is loved by many uh, and is a, a wonderful hymn of the church. So you may be familiar with the hymn itself, just from the fact that we sing it, but I wonder how familiar you might be uh, regarding John Newton and the work of uh, the Lord in his life. John Newton, um, a trophy of grace. John Newton saved by God under uh, very interesting circumstances. Um, Newton was the captain of a slave ship. He found himself in a storm. In fact, it's written and recorded the storm is 11 hours long. Uh, during this storm, he was up on the deck, and he was, as the captain, uh, fighting for his ship. He had his hands literally tied to the wheel that he might help the ship move through the storm. Some of the crew members during the storm were washed overboard. One can only imagine that Newton saw his men washed out into the sea knowing that they were dead. There was no way to recover them. He was hoping that the ship itself would just survive. And it is in the midst of this that, that in terror, in fear, he cried out, and he writes that he, he cried out and he said, Lord, have mercy on us. And God did. He brought the ship through the storm. Not everyone survived, but the ship itself did. And Newton writes that it was this moment, this storm, this situation, and the Lord's mercy upon them that God used to bring him to salvation. And then later on, uh, God eventually called Newton himself to be a gospel minister. And he studied and learned, and he, he left the trade that he was. He was no longer a sea captain. He was no longer involved in the slave trade. And, and he took up, uh, instead, uh, he took up God's word and was a minister of word, prayer, and sacrament. And he sought to make disciples of Christ. And in the midst of that, another thing that he did was having great mercy shown upon him, he sought to show mercy to others. And John Newton was heavily involved through writing and relationships and interactions to bring it into the slave trade in the United Kingdom that he once was a, a part of. And the Lord used him in, in great ways to do that. You know, and we talk often about uh, wanting to see fruit born in our lives. We pray and ask God to do that very thing. Oh, Lord, bear fruit amongst us, fruits of repentance, fruits of salvation, that we might see these things. And we see clearly that God did that in Newton's life. And if we look at this one aspect of the Beatitudes, verse 7, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. What I want you to remember and to think about and hold on to is, Christian, be merciful to others because God has shown you mercy in Christ. Christian, be merciful to others for God has shown you mercy in Christ. 
And we're going to look at three things together. First, mercy is not normal in our sinful, fallen world. Second, mercy is what God shows to His people in Christ. And third, mercy is what God's people show to the world. So first, let's, let's look at mercy, not normal in our sinful, fallen world. Now, if you are any student of history, read anything about history or aware of history at all, or perhaps maybe just look around the world a little bit even today, you'll see the reality that mercy, mercy was and is a foreign concept. It was a foreign concept to the everyday life of most in the ancient world, and it still is, sadly, in some parts of the world where, where Christianity has not reached, where the, the Spirit has not brought the gospel to, to full fruition, or we've seen, sadly, a, a cooling and, and a walking away from the faith. In those areas, we see a lack of mercy as well. I don't want to get too gruesome for the children in the room, but when you look throughout the ancient world and you look throughout history, there's almost not a continent you can go to that there was not some major civilization or country or tribe or, or group of people that did not participate in, in horribly barbaric things, particularly the sacrifice of humans. It was very common. Most often the sacrifice of, of humans was to what we see clearly and know through the revealing of scriptures in the New Testament is as false gods that were actually demonic. We come from a world that is cruel. We live in a little bit of a bubble, so we don't think about these things. But outside of Judaism and Christianity, outside of places uh, where the Scriptures had been brought to bear by the work of the Spirit, the very concept of human dignity and worth is almost impossible to find. See, we read the Scriptures, and we go back to Genesis, and from the very foundation throughout the Judeo-Christian understanding of, is that people have dignity and worth because all people are made in the image of God. That's why people have dignity and worth. Outside of that, living in, in the world that we live in, this fallen world, there is not another way to come to that conclusion other than perhaps maybe consensus of people, but even then consensus of groups can change. But we see even around the world today the remnants of what was overflowing in the ancient world, that not all people had worth and dignity, and that in fact many people were simply just a, a cog in the machine, they were just a, a brick in the wall, they were just something to be used by the ruling elites. That's why we see almost across the board a complete lack of any type of care, respect, laws protecting or looking out for particularly children, uh, especially women, but anyone who wasn't in the ruling class. And it's almost depressing when you start reading through parts of history, but at the same time, as it's depressing, it's also uh, awe-inspiring and draws us, drives us to worship to see what God has done through the gospel in this fallen world. You know, in ancient cultures, you read through, and it's very common that you find that in each of these little tribes, groups, civilizations, empires, that fathers almost ruled like demigods. And oftentimes it was cruel. 
They had complete power over their own families. And if it wasn't God, uh, the fathers that were doing this, it was the, the civil rulers who literally ruled like demigods, claimed the title of God. You can just read through the different punishments in civilizations, and it's gut-wrenching. For thousands of years in, in China, there were several common punishments that were used. In fact, there were five in particular, but two of those five included uh, regular punishments for peasants who were referred to as slaves. So you were either in the ruling family or you were the slaves of the emperor. And these two punishments would be the cutting off of the nose, horrible mutilation that no one would want to, to deal with. And then the other was the cutting off of a foot. And you can only imagine when you make your life as a laborer to lose a foot, how miserable your life would be after that. A complete and utter lack of mercy being shown in our sinful fallen world, recorded and easy to come across. Many places and many times, even today, we see it suffering, pain, and death for many. You just have to think about, I think, what is it, almost 700 years of the gladiatorial games that existed in the Roman Empire? 700 years of of death, misery, suffering, met by cheering and crowds who loved it and went to it like we go to football, soccer, and baseball games. The world is sinful, fallen, and merciless. Mercy has been uncommon, and that's a result of the fall, the sin of our first parents, Adam and Eve, that we've talked about often, causing the fall of humanity into sin. And, and yet we come to the bright light, what the Scriptures lay out, but God, the gospel that comes forth, the fact that the Lord does not leave us in this wretched place that we have come as humanity. That brings us to our second point, is the mercy. Mercy is what God shows to His people in Christ. Now, we experience this as God's people, but we read of it in His Word. It's clear He reveals it to us. We can see it in, in uh, not only church history, but throughout history, but God is merciful. Now, there's a general common grace of mercy that God extends, and, and that begins with this, the fact that when, when Adam and Eve fell in sin, when Adam's sin is the federal head of humanity, when everything was crushed and crashed and fell, that God didn't look around and say, well, this was a good attempt, but it's time to hit control and delete. I'm going to wipe this universe out, and I'm going to start over. But in God's mercy, instead, we read as we go through Genesis, and right there in the beginning, God lays out in Genesis chapter 3, not that he was going to control and delete, reboot, and start over, but that instead he, in his mercy, was going to come and deal with the very problem that his creatures had created. That promise of the coming Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, who would deal with sin. And that in the mercy we receive in him, we might be merciful. God's mercy is especially seen in Christ and the salvation and sanctification that we enjoy as his people. That as we receive Christ and trust in him by, by grace through faith and that we are able to enjoy this mercy that is poured out upon us. 
And then God's mercy isn't just that he's merciful, but God's mercy changes everything in your life, dear Christian. So if you're an unbeliever listening, watching here with us, uh, you perhaps have not experienced this, but you can look upon it or, or listen to understand what God does. But for those who are Christians, you know this reality. God's mercy changes everything in your life. As the English pastor Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote, we are not meant to control our Christianity. Christianity is rather meant to control us. I think, well, that's a strange thing to say when we're talking about God's mercy and grace and the gospel and forgiveness. But, but the point that, that John, Lloyd-Jones is, is making here is that the reality is when, when God does work in your life, when God does bring salvation, when he does give you the experience of mercy, that the fruit of that is that you, in turn, are merciful. But when we look and we see people who take God's word and either ignore it or they twist it, and yet they claim the name of Christ, those are folks who sadly have not experienced God's mercy. They've not experienced God's grace. They are attempting, for whatever reason and different purposes, to use God or the idea of God for themselves. There's two errors that reveal themselves in this, in this way. There's one error where folks take mercy, and they make mercy all of Christianity. They get rid of the gospel. They get rid of the call of repentance and, and, and coming to the Lord and asking that he might forgive you of your sins, looking to him in faith, that you might then be reconciled to him. But instead they say, no, 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 Christianity is just about showing mercy at all times. That is Christianity. It's just about our, our acts. Do good things. But then the other, other error, perhaps maybe it's in reaction to that or it's just the, the way our hearts work out, it's, it's an opposite error, and that's one uh, with folks who reject the idea of mercy at all. And they would say, well, that's not a fruit. I don't have to be merciful to others because God has been merciful to me. And so we see either the, the twisting of God's mercy or the ignoring of God's mercy. But both of these are great errors. For blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Those whom God has saved, just look at the context of the Beatitudes as he's Jesus is speaking to his disciples here. Those whom are being shown mercy by God, the fruit of that is that they show mercy in their own lives and to others. By God's grace, the Lord is working to make us more like Jesus in every moment of every day. And part of that is making us more merciful. It's causing us as disciples of Christ, as the adopted children of God, to, to literally go... 180 degrees in the opposite direction of this fallen world and to be merciful and to make an impact as we'll see in just a moment that as God's people, the salt and light, it resonates for generations even beyond in some contexts as we see in the West. God's mercy towards you causes fruit in your life that's directed toward others for the glory of God and that brings us Brings us to our third point. Mercy is what God's people show. Loving others. And we love God, we love others. And this mercy that we show, we show 
our neighbors, to one another, to those around us. Mercy becomes a common and accepted concept wherever the influence of Christianity expands to. That's what we see an explosion that happened in the New Testament. As the church goes global, we see for the first time mercy going global as well. Glenn Scrivener, he, he writes in his book, The Air We Breathe, a book I've mentioned before, about how thoroughly the Christian biblical principle of mercy has penetrated the West. It's fascinating to talk to people who are radically passionate about certain things in our own country and community, and they are things that they radically are passionate anti-Christian, anti-Bible, anti-Scriptures, and yet they don't even have the concept that the things that they are passionate about, their very roots come from the Scriptures. And that it is how the West, America, has been permeated by the Scriptures and Christianity that even allows for these things. Let me read a few sentences from Scrivener's book that might help clarify that a little bit. He writes, in the first century, some remarkable values were injected into a brutal world, values that continue to shape us today. These values have been prefigured in the Hebrew Bible, but something happened to make compassion burst the banks of Israel and begin to flood the world. Jesus. Jesus entered the pitiless realm of nature and suffered its brutalities, yet in love he chose the cross. And it was on that cross that Christ, the fittest, was sacrificed for us, the weakest, so that we, the weakest, might survive. More than that, that we might be raised up, forgiven, and filled with the life of His Spirit. Pause just for a moment. The gospel, what God has done, is is an absolute rejection of the the evil responses that we see of the promotion of things like evolution, uh, survival of the fittest that we see that comes from that, natural selection, Marxism, on and on and on you go. These different philosophies and theories that are anti-Christian that seek to attack the reality of the gospel in and of themselves and are antithetical to the truth of God's grace and mercy. But back to Back to a few sentences from Scrivener. Today we take it for granted that lording it over others is a bad look. Facebook memes declare a society should be judged by the treatment of its weakest members. And in many a Christianized country, we call our leaders ministers, literally the old English for servant. In the UK and and many countries that have come through their colonization efforts in the past, the chief governor is called the prime minister, first in the queue to minister to the people. If you want evidence of the Christian revolution, look no further. Our rulers used to pronounce themselves gods, but now they are called servants. Even the demands of the pop culture are simply downstream realities from Christianity. The idea that, as 
he mentions this meme that is in social media, yet people say things like a society should be judged by the treatment of its weakest members. Don't go far back. You don't have to go into history. You can just even read some of the, the, the giant thought makers in philosophy, whether it's ancient or modern, and they think that's rubbish. But that is, that is the reality and the extension of Christian thought, which I think it should give us all hope. We have so many points of contact to talk with our neighbors about. Oh, that's important to you? Why is that important to you? Do you know where that came from in our culture? Do you know the root of that belief that is so, you're so impassioned about? Can I tell you about where that came from? And we have an opportunity to speak of Christ and His love and mercy in the gospel. The Lord gives us so many opportunities every day to do these things. Now, the church has not been perfect because we're full of sinners, just like we are not perfect here at Christ Church, and we admit that. We confess our sins every Lord's Day morning when we come together because we know we're sinners. So the church has not been perfect, but when you look at history, it is amazing to see. It is amazing to see how God has used his people. Amazing to see how God has used the church as it has grown. Over 2,000 years, one of the things we notice, unlike any other movement, philosophy, religion, when the church goes forth, it has not, when the church goes forth, the majority of what it has done as it has made disciples, and then those disciples have been salt and light, is to positively impact everywhere it goes. Everywhere the gospel goes, everywhere that God saves sinners, makes those disciples, mercy has flowed. Injustices have been confronted and overturned throughout the world. Injustices that we take for granted, that were just no one would do those things, that in the past people took for granted, as that is reality in the way things work. Hospitals have been built. Now we look around, tax dollars are collected, hospitals are built, but it is Christians who built hospitals throughout the world and throughout history. And they did that because they sought to bring mercy to their neighbors and they wanted to care for them. Schools were built so that out of mercy, Christians wouldn't see their neighbors in ignorance and inability to understand things. It was just like the Jews, as the church expanded out to include the Gentiles, God's people wanted folks to be able to read the Bible and not live in ignorance. That's why we are a people of the book, and literacy is important. The poor are cared for throughout history. We see a great rising of the standard of living and life where Christians go. Just look at the way that God has blessed the West for all the horrible things and the sad things that we lament. Overall, God has changed the world through what has been done just in the church in the West, not even looking at the church in other places. As the gospel goes forth, as the church makes disciples of Christ, and as those disciples are salt and light, we've seen tyrannies toppled. The whole change civil governments that have happened, not because the church sought to do these things, but because as Christians became more and more and more the population, they wanted to see justice done. And they didn't want to live under tyranny. They had been freed from the tyranny of sin. They no longer wanted to be under the tyranny 
civil authorities. Godly progress has been made. Unless you study history and look at some things, I think we just take a lot for granted. We're like the fish that doesn't know it's wet. We just think this is how it is. And perhaps a rabbit trail here, particularly for the younger folks, but for the older as well. But just because God has blessed us with the ability to live off the fumes of what he's done does not mean that we will have it forever. And we should be in prayer and crying out and seeking to be salt and light. A very real aspect of that living daily as salt and light as a witness of Christ and of his gospel is showing mercy to the glory of God. Showing mercy in conversation. Showing mercy in your dealings with your calling that you do. Showing, showing mercy to those who are in need. Mercy is not everything. We are not saved by doing mercy. But that is a fruit of salvation. That we are merciful as we've been shown mercy. It's one of the reasons why when you come this evening to worship, you come this evening, you'll have an opportunity to give to the Mercy Fund here at Christ Church. You can go online and give to the Mercy Fund that the deacons oversee. Those funds specifically set aside for the meeting of needs. If you really think about it, we're, we're moving farther and farther into a place where if you really want to be countercultural, kind of really want to be the rebel and different, well, it's pursuing the things of God. It's being godly. And, and in our culture today, what is more countercultural than showing mercy to your neighbor? Genuine, real, godly mercy. Not like a pseudo-mercy or you know, shallow mercy, but real mercy. Mercy driven from a heart that's received the mercy of God. Mercy that costs us something. Might the Spirit use that? Might the Spirit even use that to arrest and stop the unbelievers around us? Perhaps to prick their very heart with who are these people? These followers of Jesus. Who lives like that? And how? And again, we have the opportunity to share the gospel and tell them about our wonderful Savior. So mercy is not normal in our sinful, fallen world. Mercy is what God shows to his people in Christ, and mercy is what God's people show to the world. Christian, Christian, hear me. Be merciful to others because God has shown you mercy in Christ. Amen? Amen? Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we hear your word, and, and we're thankful the Spirit is working. For these are heavy things. We rejoice in what you're doing, but, but, but what you tell us you are making of us, these are not things we can do on our own. So, Lord, please be at work amongst us. Let us be known as a people that love you and love others. Let us be known as people who've received your mercy. And above all around us, that we are merciful to the glory of your name. Amen. Well, let us respond together to the reading and preaching of God's word as we take hold of our, our order of service. And we're going to sing, His mercy is more. So if you're able, let's stand as we all sing together.
His mercy is more, you'll find on page 10 and 11. receive and hear now the Lord's blessing, His benediction for His people. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of God the Holy Spirit be with you all.